debate. It's a lost art form, especially in regards to soccer during the internet age. This is why the First Eleven exists. The First Eleven pits pseudo-soccer journalists against each other in a battle for the ages. Here, the week's arbitrarily named Top Eleven American Soccer Issues are laid out. Our panelists pick a side and debate ensues. There are no winners. There are no losers. There are no points awarded. There is just reverently irreverent discourse over primarily ridiculous topics that deserve our discussion or at least rambling opinions of the otherwise ignored. So prepare to be simultaneously amused and agreed. This is the first 11. All right, welcome to episode 33, I think, of the first 11. Um, filling in for Abram Chamberlain today is the much better looking and much smarter and pretty much a uh, much superior human being in Seth Maycomber, who writes for Total-MLS.com and The Bent Musket. Hello, Seth. Thanks for coming. I'm going to come back every week if you treat me like this. This is outstanding. <laughs> I've never been no. complimented more in my life. You know, it's, 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 it's unfortunate that uh, Abram's contract uh, stipulates that he has to be on here every single week if he wants to. Fortunately for us today, he was uh, tending to some, I don't know, maybe, I think he was just too busy uh, on Twitter to come on here or something like that. Trolling Don Shaughnessy, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So today we're going to talk some um, some MLS, some New York uh, MLS, which has been the craziest thing ever, and uh, some international soccer. So as Abram says every single time, we'll just jump right into it this week. Um, so there have been a lot of different, um, as Abram likes to say, the silly season of MLS. There have been a lot of different interesting um, signings and rumors that have been going around. I think you have... Uh, Steven Gerrard definitely signed with the Galaxy. You're having Josie Altidore probably coming to the league. We're not really sure yet. There have been reports about mixed discaroot. There have bunch of, been a bunch of ridiculous trades. Um, it seems like interest in the league, especially with New York and Orlando, is at an all-time high. That being said, it seems like still MLS is making up rules as they go. You know, just barely one month uh, past... Don Garber saying that transparency was something that they wanted to work on in 2015. Uh, number one in the first 11 says, while interest in MLS may be at an all-time high, the perception of the league is at an all-time low. I don't think so. I, I think that uh, the league is on the rise in, in almost every way. I mean, you look at the last World Cup and you see how many players were playing in MLS that were on the U.S. national team and on other national teams. I think that's a powerful thing. You see the most recent contract uh, as far as television deals go. Like, that's a lot of money that's going into this league. That's pretty impressive that you're able to watch some of these games in, in other areas. Uh, plus, the league does a good job of getting these highlights up. I try to find a highlight of the a championship league game uh, today, and I couldn't find it. The game happened yesterday, and the best I could find was the goal that actually happened. I couldn't find like a thirty, you know, a three-minute highlight uh, package or anything like that. So I think that the, the league is is on the rise. I think people are more aware of the league and more understanding what's going on. Because really, I don't think when people find out about this league, they don't hear about the little rules. They just see, like, the nice highlights. They see the, the Juan Agudelo backheel goal. They see, like, the small moments. It's not until they actually become a little bit more hooked that they realize how ridiculous this league truly is. And you bring up an interesting point because I do think that MLS is one of the best leagues probably in the world at – um, presenting their digital content. They have real-time stats. You get video highlights in HD within, like, minutes of of um, that event occurring. I mean, I watched, like, uh, a little... I've watched a little bit of NFL this year, and I watched one of the games earlier today, and, you know, stats for the NFL are 
pretty hard to find. They have okay stats on the website, but every single um, you know highlight video you want to watch, you have to watch a 30-second ad first. MLS the ads are only 10 seconds, and thankfully not the Steve Zakawani ad anymore. But, I mean, it just seems like from a digital perspective, uh, MLS really gets it because they understand that you know, their fans are not going to find these highlight shows on a lot of the mainstream media. That being said, uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit later with Josie, I mean, the uh, the rules, they just, again, they keep making them up, making them up as they go, and no one even knows uh, what's happening with the CBA. I mean, not only that, but, you know, we had the whole Jermaine Jones blind draw thing last year, which turned out very well for the New England Revolution, obviously. And now they're not going to have a blind draw, even though more than one team wants Josie, or Josie's going through the allocation order, even though before there was like a designated player allocation order. I don't know what the deal with MLS is. I don't know what their rules in MLS are. I don't think anyone knows what the rules in MLS are. Furthermore, uh, even back when they did have that blind draw with Jermaine Jones, why didn't they televise it? Why doesn't, I know this isn't MLS, why doesn't um, U.S. Soccer televise the Open Cup pairings or the Open Cup uh, coin flips things that they do? I mean, th there's really no downfall. The MLS is so good from a digital perspective, and yet they can't do the simple, important things simply. If there actually was a blind draw for Jermaine Jones, what is the, what is the downside of showing it? Well, I'm assuming that the, the girl they hired to like, do the blind draw actually wasn't that good looking. So they decided not to, you know, showcase. It wasn't Vanna White or something like that. But, uh, you know, going back to the statement that was, was put in front of us, that's that perception is being hurt by the diehard fans. The regular fans, the or, or even the casual fans, or even the people that just barely understand soccer, I don't think they know about this stuff. They don't care about this stuff. All they see is that Jermaine Jones is here. All they see is that Josie Altador is coming. And that's helping the perception of the league. So I... I think that, if anything, the league is being hurt by still this idea of being a retirement league, not necessarily the transparency part. Uh, I think that, that there's still this, this misconception with you know, your Frank Lampard and your Steven Gerrards that this is a retirement league and this is not a league up and rising. But I think overall, I think the perception has to be up. The big contracts, more visibility, the league is doing well right now. Because I don't support any one team, I don't really have much of an issue when one player goes to one team rather than another team. It just I just think it's important for the questions to be asked, and I don't feel like the questions are going to be answered. I mean, the, the NFL had a huge issue with transparency this year, and that's what we don't want to see with MLS. So um, I don't know, that, that, that's just my two cents. I, I do actually agree, though. I think that... Um, the league is doing really, really, really well. And when I started watching it, um, I started watching it in regularly in MLS season 10, so it would be my 10-year anniversary this year. And it, it, it's never been better, never been better. So I think we both agree we want to see more transparency in MLS. And I think we also both agree that we want to see more Josie Altador in MLS. Number two on the first 11 reads, Josie Altador needs to move away from Sutherland. MLS is a better move than another place in Europe. And I don't... I don't think this is this is true. I mean, it really depends. You know, I'm not Josie, right? People gave Michael Bradley um, a lot of crap for coming back to um, to MLS, and I remember Abram wrote a great article about um, like something like, you know, uh, Michael Bradley's move to Toronto FC isn't the best move for you, but you aren't Michael Bradley or something like that. And I mean, I don't know what Josie. Maybe Josie wants to. Um, you know, one of the things that we never think about when discussing moves is what does does this certain player where do they want to live? You know, I mean, for me, 
if I if I'm a young player of Josie Altidore's age, I would rather um, you know spend time while I can learning about other cultures, like in Europe or something like that. I don't know if that's the way Josie wants to do it. He's actually lived in like six or seven different countries at this point in his his career already. So it's all about what he wants to do, right? I think for his career-wise, I would like to see. I've heard the rumors from uh, Lille um, in the northeast of France. They're uh, perennially maybe a top five club in that league, though this season they have not been doing so well. I think that would be a good move for him. I think it could be good going to a lower club. It's just clear that he needs to get out of Sunderland, and I think that everyone is assuming that he will. I just don't know if MLS is the best place for him. I don't think it would be bad for him, but I think that possibly going to a club like Lille in France could be a lot better for him and challenge him for his career, and I think he could be successful in scoring goals in a league like that. Your first point is what makes me think that he should come back to MLS, and I just finished reading the Tim Howard book, and I started reading the Robbie Rogers book, and both players said the same thing. When, you're, when your mind is good off the field, you're playing well on the field, and I don't think Josie Altidore's mind is good uh, off the field right now. I think that there's just too much going on. I think he's too much in his own head at Sutherland. Uh, you know, you look back at that West Ham miss, you know, that, that's a goal that you have to make. If you're Josie Eltador and you have, you scored one goal at Sutherland your entire time there, league goal your entire time there, uh, you have to score that goal. So to miss something like that, it's just really embarrassing. Um, and, and to come back home would be good for him. I mean, even salary-wise, they're saying it's going to be between 5 and $6 million. So he's, he's getting actually a, a pay raise there probably, depending on how everything kind of pays hands out. He's going to be playing back at home. Um, if he ends up being with Toronto, he's playing with guys like, you know, Michael Bradley. If he goes to Portland, he's playing guys like Valeri. So he has some talent that's going to really help him uh, succeed on the field. And I think that's the big thing. You know, you got a young kid who still has a lot of years ahead of him. He has to put himself in a comfortable position. And I think right now MLS is that comfortable position. And you bring up, um, if he comes back to MLS, which teams would be interested in him. Um, ESPN, I can't remember if it was Doug McIntyre or Jeff Carlisle, I apologize, um, both great reporters. One of them reported that there are three clubs who are interested in in MLS who are interested in Josie Altidore. It appears as if the New York Red Bulls, one of those clubs, are out of the racing or out of the Josie race as they will not meet his salary de demands, oddly enough. Um, so it appears as if the last two clubs remaining for him are Toronto and Portland. Uh, number three on the first 11 says, Josie Altidore is a much better fit in Portland than he is in Toronto. I say Portland, yeah. I think Portland makes a lot of sense for him. Just because of the stability factor, Toronto is just this hot mess, and you have no idea who's going to get fired when at, at Toronto. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if Greg Vanny is going to last the whole year. I don't know if uh, Tim Bezpachinko. I don't know if he's going to last the whole year. I don't know if Michael Bradley's going to just just take off one day and just go AWOL. Like you have no idea what's going to you you know as you always say this is like the Mike Tyson effect. Like you could say anything about Toronto FC and I would believe it. I I, I would believe that they would fold mid-season and become Chiefs <laughs> USA. I don't know. Like I I just think that you know you're going to play with Valeri, you're going to play with the problem is I see with Portland however is that he wouldn't have the strike partner that he might have in Toronto. I think he would actually play pretty well with uh, Gilberto. I think we're all assuming that Defoe is out the door. Uh, I think that would actually be a pretty good tandem, you know, playing with some other guys like Michael Bradley and stuff like that. I think that would be good for him. But I think situationally, I think Portland would be a, a good situation for him. It's interesting to think about because 
you obviously have two completely different teams and two completely different systems. And one, on one hand, in you play in Portland, which is probably if you're if you're coming to the league uh, from Europe and you want to play in front of a great home crowd, you're either going to want to come back to Portland or you're going to want to come back to Seattle. Um, Portland is just a really, really great city, uh, really great soccer city. You know, everything there revolves around. Uh, they only have two sports: they have basketball and soccer. Uh, furthermore, he get to play. Josie Altidore will get to play with Diego Valeri, one of the best players in the league. He will get to play with Will Johnson, one of the best players in the league. He will get to play with Diego Chara, who is, I think is one of the best midfielders in the league. I don't know if a lot of other people rate him, but as well as Darlington Nagby. And it would seem like a perfect fit for Portland because, though he wouldn't have a strike partner in a sense because they play a 4-5-1 or 4-3-3, whatever you want to call it, um, he, he would definitely be getting service. right? I feel like he would get a lot of chances to score goals. But on the other hand, at Toronto... You get to play with Michael Bradley and Gilberto, who who is excellent in moving off the ball and excellent at setting up his partner. I, I think uh, Gilberto is a very underrated player. The problem is, you know, you bring up the fact that Toronto has, uh, you know, no stability or in, in this league, and they're in the Tyson zone. But what about Portland? I mean, Portland's had one good season, right? They've had one good season. Their owner is crazy. I mean, Merritt Paulson is is the most impulsive. Uh, I mean, giving who who thought it was a good idea to let Merritt Paulson have a Twitter account? I mean, it just doesn't really make any sense. I, I I mean, right now, I think it would work out for Josie to come to either team. But I what I really want to know is why the New York Red Bulls aren't going to pony up the cash. To get well, I think I think the the Red Bulls, and I will talk about it a little bit later on. I think they're going in a different direction. I think that's part of the reason why they hired this different coach. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, I do going back to what you said. I think that the move to Portland would be nice because I think he would be a more marquee star there. I think that with Toronto, with Michael Bradley, they're kind of sharing it with Gilberto. And, and I feel like with with um, with Toronto, you just never know. that They might just sign someone else and you know build a team around them and just go a different direction next season, not want to have Josie Altador there. I don't know. I just feel like with Portland, they're going to sign him and they're going to stick with him. And they'll that will be their marquee. He'll be on every single like poster and stuff like that. With Toronto, I'm just not sure. I don't know. Something just is always just seems off for me about Toronto. Yeah, and we haven't even mentioned the fact that they have their first like seven games on the road because they're expanding BMO Field to thirty thousand. Who knows that they're gonna like how many empty crowds they're gonna play in front of this year. Not only that, but wouldn't it, if you were Toronto, wouldn't it make sense to sell Defoe and with the money that you got from Defoe, like purchase an actual defender or two? And maybe shore up the defense. They're fine offensively. There's nothing wrong with them offensively. They just they haven't been able to defend or shop anyone or have any depth on their team. Real quick, do you think uh, Josie Altidore starts over Dominic Adoro? <laughs> Dominic Adoro. Oh my God. Uh, number four on the first eleven reads. No transitions here. Number four on the first eleven reads. Stephen Gerrard is a signing of excess for LA, who already have Janino uh, and Sarvis. Um. Obviously, if you are LA Galaxy, you can't not make this deal. I mean, your biggest player of all time, probably. That's, I mean, that's hard to say, given that the impact from David Beckham is probably more so than Donovan on on MLS. But one of the biggest players in well, the pro, okay, overall the over the course of the league, Landon Donovan is the biggest and most important player. That's that's just a fact, and he just retired. Right, you need someone to replace him. Obviously, we heard the rumors of Pirlo. Uh, I heard some rumors of Ronaldinho, but you know, Steven Gerrard 
very good signing for the league. I mean, he can still he can still play. I think he he's made. Uh, I, mean, I think he's been hurt a little bit this year. I don't know. I haven't watched as much English Premier League as as I've wanted to. I mean, obviously he's a step slow for one of you know the better teams in the English Premier League, but that doesn't mean he can't provide quality to the Galaxy. Um, my only question about this signing is, yeah, with Sarvis and Janino, it was sort of like the, you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it thing. You know, Sarvis and Janino proved that in MLS that they were one of the best central midfielders in the league, if not the best. In LA Galaxy, um, I believe I don't think they had Sarvis in 2011, but with Janino has won three of the last four MLS Cups. And so my question is, why didn't they go for um, a player at a different position? I mean, it, they're sort of... But but then saying that again, I mean, it seems like they're stacked everywhere. And uh, I, I know that um, some people have mentioned that possibly one of Janino or Sarvis can move to the outside um, and take over the left midfield position that Landon Donovan vacated. My only thing is that it seems like when in getting Gerard over Donovan, they're getting uh, a very good player, but they're losing a lot of versatility. Yeah, well, I, I think when... With uh, LA Galaxy, I think you have to remember that they are, in fact, a super club. And super <laughs> clubs just do what they want. And they want Steven Gerrard. So I think that's, you know, when you look at the LA Galaxy, where are their weaknesses? There really isn't, like, one huge glaring weakness. So their job is basically just to get better wherever they can. And Steven Gerrard will instantly make this team better. Um, is Janino and Sarvez, are they a good pairing? Yeah, absolutely. They're totally suitable for MLS. But if you're telling me... That they start over, one of them starts over Steven Gerrard, then you're you're biased and you're lying. And you don't understand exactly what you know what's going on with these players. So I, I I think also you bring up the point about Landon Donovan. You need to assign someone to kind of put in the posters and stuff like that. You obviously have Robbie Keane, who's you know King Keane, and they do a good job with promoting him. You have uh, you know Jesse Zardes, who is the future, and you can obviously start you know putting him on posters. But you don't want to necessarily put a lot of pressure on the younger guys. Steven Gerrard will take that pressure. He's not going to treat it like a retirement league. He's going to come in, be a leader from day one. Um, plus, you know, with Landon Donovan leaving, and I know that uh, Bobby Keane takes him a lot, but he misses him a lot. I mean, you need someone who's pretty reliable at taking penalty kicks. And I heard he did a really good job last year, you know, taking penalty kicks. They, uh, they seem like they're one or two signings away from being able to make a run at the Champions League. I know that they're not, obviously, in the... Um, uh, quarterfinals this year, but I'm talking about next year. And that's really, you know, at this point with that LA Galaxy team, that's the only thing that they haven't done. And that that's the one thing that I would like to see them do is really focus and try and uh, win the CONCACAF Champions League and get a get a spot in the Club World Cup because no MLS team has done that. Absolutely. And I think that if anyone's going to be able to do it, it's, it's the LA Galaxy. I think LA Galaxy, you know, poises themselves really well, especially with Bruce Arena. Bruce Arena is an absolute genius when it comes to... Uh, yeah, drinking champagne. champagne, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to head into a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk the craziness that is New York City soccer. And we are back here on the first eleven. Um, I'm going to talk some um, New York City soccer. Uh, a lot of things have uh, come out in the past week, and I think it was uh, Ivis Galarstep who tweeted out, you know, uh, a couple of days before it happened, just saying well, this month or this week is going to be crazy in MLS. And so far, it has been 100% crazy. You have 
Uh, what we're going to talk about, you have the reports of mixed discord headed to New York City FC, uh, the firing of Mike Pecky, possibly a Sasha question citing, citing um, and the Cosmos haven't even done anything other than sign, you know, a 37-year-old Raul to play for them. Who knows how that's going to turn out? But um, let's see. We're going to start with the mixed discord signing. Um, Gold.com's Ivis Galar said they report that uh, mixed discord would sign with New York City Football Club. Um, that signing is not known whether he will be a designated player or not. Um, but we're going to talk about him, I guess, as he um, goes uh, fits into the U.S. national team. Uh, number five on the first 11 says that rumored New York City FC signing mixed discord is the worst number 10 in the MLS era. When I say that, I mean for the U.S. national team, he is the worst person to wear the number 10 jersey since MLS started in 1996. Oh, I had no idea actually what this meant. Uh, oh, okay. I, I was thinking that he was the, the worst 10 in MLS history, which I want to bring up uh, Jefferson, who played for uh, Sporting Kansas City. <laughs> he was and pretty was, bad. was touted as you know being the, the absolute future of the team and going to score all these goals and this and that, and he ended up uh, only having one assist and then being on the bench most of the time as a designated player. Uh, so I, I don't know. like What other number 10s have there been? Okay, so let's go. Let's go. So we started in 96, right? 96 yep. when MLS started, the U.S. number 10 is Tab Ramos, right? Okay. Uh, after he retires, I think shortly after 1998, I think he made like a one or two emergency appearances. Um, we have Claudio Reyna, and from there, the uh, he, Claudio Reyna, or sorry, Landon Donovan inherited the number 10 jersey, though didn't necessarily play a number 10 sort of position. Um, and then from there, it's been a mixed discord. So out of those four guys, I mean. Uh, and those four guys are were at the time sort of the main creators on the team. I guess Claudio Reyna less so in that he was more of a deep lying midfielder. But those were the guys required to create the chances for the team. And um, the reason why I wrote that is because my conjecture that out of those four guys, Mr. Discarude is by far the worst and has by far the lowest upside. Yeah, I think also. I mean, I remember when Landon Donovan retired, there was a big hoopla about who would wear the number 10 after him and whether or not you kind of keep it vacant for a little while. And it is kind of a letdown to have Mixed Discord be the guy to wear number 10. Um, that having been said, I do think he has a, a good ceiling. I do like what I saw with him from some of the, the friendlies, especially when he was playing that deeper role. I thought that was kind of really creative, and it was nice to make force him to play a, a more defensive role and to like work on his weaknesses. I thought that was smart by Jürgen Klinsmann. Uh, but, yeah, it's definitely you, you going through those rosters – of, of players, he's definitely uh, disappointing overall. Um, although granted, better than Jefferson. <laughs> that, that reminds me, I was wondering if uh, Claudio Bieler is still in MLS. That <laughs> just, just. Uh, I always, oh, you know, this is just, you know, number uh, five point five on the first eleven reads. Uh, I think Claudio uh, Bieler is underrated as a player. I do too, but uh, I mean, I was talking to my brother, the indomitable Matt Ream, and he said the reason why he doesn't get playing time is because he's not athletic enough to high pressure, um, or or doesn't have the greatest work ethic to high pressure um, in the system that Sporting Kansas City plays, um, and that's why you see guys who can't score like Jacob Peterson um, playing. I did want to ask you though, going back to Mitch Discreet, I have two questions about you, well, for you. The, the first thing is. Um, one is Miss Mixed Discrude, and not we don't know if he has one or not. Is Mixed Discrude worth a designated player deal in MLS? And the second thing is, um, do you think that the U.S. starting central midfield tandem this summer in the Gold Cup is going to be Bradley and Discrude? And if so, um, well, I guess we're going to talk about the chances later. What, what what do you think for those two questions? The first one, 
I'm going to say no, and I, I hope he's not a designated player because I just think it it just undercuts the work of guys like Benny Failhaber and Lee Wynn, who I would argue play very well as number 10 and probably deserve to be designated players in MLS, but because of the timeliness of it, are not designated players. And you get a guy like Mix Diskarud, who, yeah, he's played in Europe, uh, but he, he's going to try to demand a designated player salary just because he's been away for a little while. And going back to the, the Robbie Rogers book, um, he, he talked about how he was he was going to sign with MLS, but he ends up going over to Europe, and he didn't like it over in Europe. And when he was going over to Europe initially, he was offered um, the same amount of money to go to Europe to, as to play in MLS. MLS said, I'll give you, we'll give you this much. Uh, but because he came back afterwards and was unsuccessful, they undercut him. And they said, we're only going to give you 50000 which is still a decent amount in MLS, but like it was way less than he was originally offered. So I think that you know you, you just you, you can't just give every single person that goes over to Europe a designated player contract. So I I get uh, concerned about that, and I think yeah I think uh, you'll see Michael Bradley and and mixed discrew in the midfield, especially with Jermaine Jones going back and playing center back. Um, I don't know if they'll be a tandem for every single game, but I think right now that looks like the tandem I, I would put out there. You would put the uh, discrew in there over Lee Wynn. I, I I think so. Uh, I have to see more from Lee Wynn. I think, and like I said, I think Lee Wynn's obviously talented and stuff, but I, I don't don't know how much uh, Jurgen Klinsmann values him and, and, and views him because obviously he just got called up, but it took a really long time for him to you know get brought up to the national team again. While Mix Diskaru had been in the plans for a while and obviously was a part of the the World Cup, even though he didn't play. So I think there's obviously, you know, Jürgen Klinsmann, every coach does it. Jürgen Klinsmann has his favorites. You look at Breck Shea, who, you know, just came back and got a call up to the national team. You kind of wonder, really? I mean, what has he done to deserve this? Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that mixed discord is a, a project for Jürgen Klinsmann, and he'll have the spot until someone proves that they should take it away. All right. All right. The next one on the first 11, number six, I believe. Yes, sir. Number seven, number eight, number six. Number six, number six in the first 11, talking about Mike Pecky. Uh, he was obviously, this is one of the midnight news uh, pieces that dropped, uh, which, you know, caused a lot of people to lose sleep and stay up and look at Twitter and go to work uh, tired the next day. Uh, this dropped that they were going to fire Mike Pecky, who was the only coach to get uh, hardware for the New York Red Bulls, unless you count the Emirates Cup with Hans Baca, which nobody does. So number six on the first 11 reads, the Red Bulls firing Mike Pecky is a sign that the front office just doesn't get it. And I don't know if it's the front office just not getting it as much as the ownership. It just, it just, uh, it just seems like foreign ownership too far away to really understand. I mean, look, I don't know how good of a manager Mike Pecky was, but I know that he was a local guy, and in his two seasons with the New York Red Bulls, he delivered a trophy, and he made the Eastern Conference Finals with them. I mean, really, for a franchise that has done pretty much nothing except for, well, nothing that wasn't unintentionally funny, um, sorry for the double negative, in their entire history, it doesn't make a lot of sense to fire the guy who gave you your small... small um, uh, victories, as as it seems, and the, the the thing is, is like I understand if you're gonna fire Mike Pecky and hire like Arsene Wenger or something like that, but they fired Mike Pecky and replaced him with another former MLS guy who doesn't really seem like he, he's that necessarily that much better. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, they got Jesse Marsh. Is Jesse Marsh an upgrade from Mike Pecky? I don't know. 
but it's not like it was a home run hit. And it just seems like with the Henri retirement um, and the fact that they're not going after Josie and the fact that they fired Mike Pecky to get Jesse Marsh, I really don't know if I were a season ticket holder for the New York Red Bulls. What I mean, what's stopping me from going across town to to a New York City football club that's opening? It's one, it's probably closer to me, and two, um, it's not like they do anything to uh, dis- disappoint their fan base. Oh, uh, never mind. See, I see. I've gone through all the different emotions and all the different viewpoints on this. And like when I first saw this, I just started cracking up because it just seems so ridiculous to me that right before the combine, right before the draft, you've already gone through expansion drafts. You've already like declined players' options with Mike Pecky, and now all of a sudden you you fire the guy so close to the season. I, I just it just seemed like it didn't make any any sense. But more I started thinking about it, I I think this. I think it makes sense, and, and the way that I think it makes sense is because the team is going in a different direction, and they talked about that. That you know, you get rid of, um, you get rid of Thierry Henry. Obviously, there has to be some sort of rebuilding that has to happen. You get a a new guy in, in Curtis who's going to lead the team forward. And the fact of the matter is, if you want Curtis to lead this team, you got to let Curtis have all the decision making. And if he believes that Mike Pecky is not the guy for the job, then this is the time you fire him. You don't do the Ryan Nelson deal and, and keep him around for a couple months and then fire him and then ruin your entire season. Like, if he sits there and says, you know what, Mike Pecky is not the guy that has my philosophy, you got to get rid of him. Uh, and, and I think the part of the issue why he's not the guy for this is because he, I think he's a good motivator. I think Mike Pecky's a very good motivator. He's very passionate. He's very um, you know, spirited. He, he gets really into things and, you know, gets mad at people at Twitter and stuff like that and wears beautiful cardigan sweaters. But I think the fact of the matter is, and I think this is a common complaint about Pecky, is that he doesn't necessarily understand the technical side of the game as well as other people. And I think Jesse Marsh does. I mean, he was the assistant coach for the U.S. national team under uh, Bob Bradley, and he, Bob Bradley understands tactics pretty well. Now, granted, he doesn't always understand how to uh, attack and stuff like that as well as other people, but like he understands how to get victories, and I think that's what the team wants to, to do here. So I think that's why Jesse uh, Marsh makes sense. Uh, I do think it's kind of ironic, though, that Jesse Marsh was fired under the idea that it's a uh, difference of, of philosophy up in Montreal, and the same thing basically happens with uh, Mike Pecky. So I think we can all assume that midseason – uh, when Frank Kopos is obviously going to be fired, uh, that Mike Pecky is going to step in and do a great job up there. In Montreal. The, the, the one thing is, I, and if, if that's the real reason for them firing, then that's, I'm fine with that, right? That, that makes sense to me. But what is this? Right now, the New York Rebels are not a playoff team. I mean, who do they have? They have, sure, they have Bradley Wright Phillips, who scored 27 goals, but I don't care who you are, uh, who anyone. You know, there was that whole BWP for MVP thing. That was just, like, utter bullshit. Because the person running that team, the person, the reason why Bradley Wright Phillips scored so many goals, the reason why the Red Bulls even made the playoffs was because of Thierry Henry. I mean, how many times you see Thierry Henry set up Bradley Wright Phillips for a tap-in right that was just set up perfectly. How many times did we see defenses focus on Thierry Henry and leave Bradley Wright Phillips right open? Without Thierry Henry, um, and from what I'm hearing from, you know, a lot of different people is that it seems like Tim Cahill won't return either. Without either of those guys, who, who are going to be the difference makers on this team? I mean, they have Lloyd Sam. He's a fine player. They have um, was Eric Alexander had a good year last year. Dax McCarty. I mean, but but they don't really have any difference makers in the, in the attacking third. I, I just don't understand 
where this where this team what this team's going to do next year. And it seems like firing Mike Pecky might not have been the best thing to do. I don't know. It just it, this team uh, is clearly unless they make a number of changes, this team is going to be it out of the playoffs in the very weak Eastern Conference next year. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem is not necessarily the hiring and firing of, of the coaches there. I think the, the problem overall is that they've changed the narrative. I think that everyone looking at this thought that this is a team that's going to struggle this year uh, because you get rid of Terry Henry. If you get rid of Terry Henry, no matter what team it is, and you don't replace him, and it's impossible to replace him, basically, they're going to struggle the next year. Um, but now all of a sudden it's going to be if they don't make the playoffs, the Red Bulls don't make the playoffs, it's not going to be, oh, because they missed Terry Henry. It's going to be because, oh, they, they fired um, Mike Pecky. I mean, the, the, the fans of Red Bulls are going to make a giant billboard. So that's how passionate they are about Mike Pecky. That's how much they love Mike Pecky. So them not making the playoffs with Mike Pecky, they might have been like, eh, no big deal. At least we still got our guy. We'll do it better next year. We missed Terry Henry. But them losing, missing the playoffs with – Jesse Marsh would be pretty devastating, I think, for the club. Yeah, and um, you know, one of the changes that is rumored to come with Jesse Marsh is that of um, sometimes USA International Sasha Kleshchin, who I believe has uh, the most Champions League uh, appearances out of any U.S. player in the last World Cup cycle for uh, uh, Anderlecht in Belgium. Um, it, it, he has been widely reported to be on his way to Red Bull New York after um, a deal with LA Galaxy last year fell through. Um, number seven on the first 11 says, however, that signing Sasha Kleshin won't actually fix any of Red Bull New York's problems. Yeah, this is a tough one. Sasha Kleshin, I think, is a good player in MLS. and he, You can see it before he left that you know he did very well with Chivas USA. Uh, but the, the problem is that you're missing Thierry Henry, and there is no... Uh, automatic replacement for Thierry Henry. Like, no matter who you slot into that spot, it, they're, they're going to struggle. Uh, granted, I think that bringing in Jesse Marsh, you're probably going to see formation changes, so maybe uh, they, they can kind of make it work. But, you know, BWP has to hit more of his chances. That's what it's going to come down to, more than anything else, because um, th the chances are going to be fewer next year without Thierry Henry. In 2009, um Sasha Kleshchin played against Sweden in a friendly at the Home Depot Center and scored a hat trick. Um, one of them was on a one of the goals was on a ridiculous 35-yard goal. And from that moment, um, it was I believe January, or February 2009. I said I thought you know like this guy is the future of the U.S. midfield. You know it was it for me it was going to be him and uh, Bradley uh, pairing then. A couple couple months later, or one month later, even USA played Mexico. Bradley scored those two goals against Oswaldo Sanchez and Sasha Kleshchin. After that game, though, he did start and I believe played 90 minutes. Didn't really make any more dominant appearances for the U.S. He had a late run to be on the team in 2010. Didn't really make it. I don't think he was even called into the 30 um, this this last time around. Um, but that being said, every time I watch him play, it's like he has the skills, right? He has all of the intangibles. He's, I think, he's, for all intent, uh, from everything I hear, he seems like to a, a good guy in the locker room. The one thing is, is it's just always when you when you have Sasha question, you always feel like there's that you should be getting a little bit more than you actually are. And I, I think that 
with New York Red Bulls, he could uh, have a very successful partnership with Dax McCarty. I know both of them are sort of deeper line, but Sasha Kleshin is more of a creator than Dax is. I think that it could go a long way towards helping um, the New York Red Bulls, but I still think that they need another forward, and they probably need help um, uh, on the, the left midfield side and the back line to actually have a successful year next year. So I think that Sasha Kleshin would be a great step towards um, solving Red Bull's problems, but I think they still need a lot, a lot more difference makers. Yeah, I think you know, kind of redefine the the idea of a problem. I think that it's more than the on-field product that's the problem with the Red Bulls. I think you also deal with now the the issue with fans uh, filling out Red Bull Arena. That's always been a kind of a problem because it's a beautiful facility, but it doesn't always fill out. Regulated doesn't really fill out, and Sasha Kostin's not going to do it. I mean, Thierry Henry didn't do it. Uh, Sasha Question won't do it, um, and I think that that Sasha Question just isn't as big enough name to uh, cover up the coaching situation. I think that that's going to have to happen later on uh, with the on-field product and stuff like that. So uh, if, if Sasha Question does get the results, maybe that does solve all the problems. But I'm not exactly 100% sure that he will. You know who would draw a crowd? Who? Josie Altidore. Josie Altidore. So we have two teams in New York. Well, one in New Jersey, I guess. But two teams that, that have the name New York in their um, their name. Uh, we have NYCFC and we have Red Bull New York. And the question really is, which one's doing it worse? So <laughs> the next one on the first of up and reads, NYCFC will be more successful than the New York Red Bulls next year. Um, I... I agree with this for on the field because I don't know what the hell is going on with New York City FC off the field given that they just completely lied about the Lampard situation and sort of hoped that uh, no one would ever find out. I mean, they announced him as a signed player and then, oops, oh no, he never actually signed a contract. That being said, on the field, they have um, a great start to um, their their roster, it seems like. I'm just going off the top of my head, but um, you know they picked up... Um, Sebastian Velasquez and um, Chris Winger in the expansion draft, both of whom have played under Jason Christ before and both um, of whom are very, very good MLS role players. And they added those players to David Villa, who, I mean, let's be honest, David Villa is going to score at least 15 goals this year if he's healthy. Uh, Frank Lampard, um, who will come midseason and can obviously still play. I mean, he's making differences for Manchester City, who are, uh, I believe, in second place in the English Premier League. Do you add that to... Um, Mix Discarude, who uh, is allegedly going to be at New York City FC. I think that this is a player who, though though we said, you know, uh, I said he didn't have a terribly high ce- uh, ceiling earlier before, I think it's a player who can sort of fit into either that, um, I guess, for, for if, you, if you compare Real Salt Lake and to New York City uh, uh, SC, uh, by using Jason Kreiss, you know, as, as saying that like they're going to play the same sort of system, which I'd, I'd assume that they are. I think that mixed disc route is going to be sort of a better Luis Gill for um, for New York City. I've seen what I mean by that is that in, he's going to be the attacking midfielder, the, the Javier Morales, until Frank Lampard gets there. And then once Frank Lampard gets there, I would imagine that disc route sort of shuffles over to the side of the, the 4-4-2 diamond formation. I think that he's going to be a very useful player regardless of which position he plays in. And I think that um, it seems like the moves that um, New York are making have, New York City are making have a lot of upside as compared to everything that the Red Bulls are doing right now just stink. And we don't even know 
other than Bradley Wright Phillips, who are going to be the major difference makers for them next year. I'm really scared with the Red Bulls. I mean, they were obviously a game away, a goal away from MLS Cup. So they did very well last year. Uh, but I'm really scared that – I don't know if I'm scared because I don't want really to carry it away. But I, I think that the Red Bulls might have a DC United-type implosion next year where they yeah. just do absolutely terrible because uh, – they have pieces there, and that, and even like if you look, go back and look at DC United uh, roster that year, they had pieces. They, they just couldn't get healthy. They couldn't connect very well. Um, so they that could possibly happen. There's kind of this this disconnect between all the roster and the coach. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the Red Bulls next year. And on the flip side, I think you're exactly right. I think that you look at what New York City FC has done, and they've slowly started building this team that should find success. I mean, you compare the different pieces. D- David Villa, Bradley Wright Phillips. I picked David Villa. Even though uh, Bradley Wright Phillips is coming off you know, a, a great season where he tied the MLS scoring record, I'm always going to pick David Villa to do that. If you look at Mixed Discarude or Sasha Klustian, I, I go Mixed Discarude. Uh, I think that that's probably maybe a wash. You can go either way. Uh, you look at the back line, you got George John on the back line of New York City FC. That's a great pickup, even though he obviously is, is recovering from injuries and stuff like that. So I think that you have a coach in um, you have a coach in Jason Christ who knows the league and knows how to find the diamond in the roughs and who's going to to have a successful team. Where I think Jesse Marsh, it's a rebuilding year, flat out. Even if it wasn't Jesse Marsh, it was Mike Pecky. It's it was always going to be a rebuilding year this year. I, I agree. And one last thing I'd like to bring up is that Jason Christ was able to form and maintain one of the best teams in the league for a long period of time in Real Salt Lake, and he did that without a budget, essentially. And and obviously he had a you know probably the best executive in the league helping him in Garth Lagerway. But I mean, it remains to be seen. But I, Claudio Reyna is is one of the best. Um, uh, soccer minds that the United States has ever produced, and I, I don't think that Claudio Reyna will be that much of a drop off from um, Garth Lagerwey in terms of. I, I know they may not have the same exact role, but um, in terms of um, uh, executives working with the coach in order to form a good team, it just seems like the only difference now is that rather than signing a designated player like Alvaro Sabarillo, who is a very good player, they get to sign guys like David Villa and sign air quotes guys like Frank Lampard. Um, With that, as Abram always likes to say, we're going to head into our second break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the U.S. national team, the youth, and the adults. And we'll also talk about what's going on in Asia. <laughs> Sorry, we do our obligatory Abram bashing um, when we were off air, and hopefully he'll keep it in for, I don't know, was he would call them the outtakes or whatever when he plays his uh, trendy underground rap music. Um, by the way, Abram produces this show. Uh, I don't know why, given that he has a lot more responsibilities than I do, but who knows. Um, we're going to be talking some international soccer now. The first thing I wanted to bring up is a tournament that I've been watching. I've now watched two of the five or six games of the AFC Asian Cup. Obviously, if you're on the East Coast, that's sort of difficult times, but um, the games are at 11 p.m. West Coast and 1 p.m. or 1 a.m. West Coast time. So if you if you're if you're a night owl, though, um, they're uh, they're they're not. Uh, 
out of reach of watching. But one thing is that, you know, in the past I would always see, you know, a game like uh, United Arab Emirates against Qatar and just be like, well, I'm not going to watch that game. That game's stupid, right? But last night I watched United Arab Emirates against Qatar, and it was probably one of the most entertaining soccer games that I have seen in a very long time. Um, uh, and I also watched South Korea Oh Man the other day, and it was, it was, it was really great. And it was really great to learn about cultures that were so different than ours and cultures that you don't often learn about. And that's one of my favorite things about the World Cup is all the random teams that qualify. You get to learn about um, what the different countries are, are like. And, and, and by watching the Asian Cup, you can do so. Um, number nine on our first 11 says, the AFC Asian Cup, a tournament you aren't watching but should be. I don't know. We were talking off air, and you were telling me that you have these goalkeepers that are making uh, terrible mistakes and <laughs> It sounds like to me you're basically watching public soccer. You're watching part-time soccer players. So I think it's maybe good for the comedy value, but I don't know necessarily if it's good for, for watching soccer. Plus, I'm one of those East Coast guys, and uh, it's hard for me to stay up uh, late to, to watch these type of, type of comedies. <laughs> well, you know, and, and that's, you know, oddly enough, um, the – the West Coast is going to be better for watching the AFC Asian Cup because start times are at 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. But the East Coast has the better chance to watch the African Cup of Nations, which is coming up in about 10 days, which you should also tune into, although I don't, why the AFC Asian Cup and the African Cup of Nations are happening at the same time, I don't know. But the African Cup of Nations, I believe, for the East Coast has a 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. start times. So although those may be... Um, possibly in your work schedule, at least if you're waking up on a weekend, you don't have to get up at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. super early to watch the games. Either way, I guess the point I was trying to make by bringing up these things is that there's all this great soccer that's being played in the world and all these international tournaments that are so great that people aren't paying as much attention to as they should. And so um, first 11 listeners, I would say that if you if you have the time, if you if you get a chance to, to try and tune into either the Asian Cup or the African Cup of Nations, and then later this year also the Copa America, because there are a lot of great soccer tournaments and a lot of great players that uh, you, you're probably missing just because uh, you, you're not going out of your way to find these games. Yeah, and to go along with that, I heard you mention it last week on the, the show. Um, if you like this type of stuff, 31-0 by James Montague yeah. is, is a great book, and I think that's, that's part of the reason why I actually probably would like to watch the Asian Cup is that these stories are great. You get these part-time players. You get these guys that um, have to buy their own uniforms, and that you know, it's great to kind of read some of these stories and to, to learn more about different areas. Plus, like you said, you know, the geography. Like you learn about places that you didn't know existed. You know, you, you like look at the African Cup of Nations. You look at you know, you know, where is Equatorial Guinea? You know, like well, you have no idea about these some of these African nations and where they are. So it's definitely a good learning experience for people that don't know much about any the world. Yeah, learn more about the world. Yeah, come on, step it up, world. Step it up, U.S. <laughs> target target market for the the first eleven podcast, the U.S. <laughs> All right, number ten of the first eleven, talking about bring it back home because this is the target market for the United States. Uh, the first eleven is we have a pretty big tournament that's going to happen this summer, the Gold Cup, uh, and obviously the United States is in a transitional year. They brought in some youth for these upcoming games that kind of made a lot of people start wondering what Jurgen Klinsmann is doing. Uh, you, you have guys that are retiring. You have Tim Howard, who is away from international duty. So number 10 on the first 11 says, with the United States national team in a transitional phase, Mexico is the clear favorite for the Gold Cup. I 100% completely agree with uh, 
uh, with this, though, I, I think it would be great to see a team like uh, like Costa Rica make a run and possibly win it. seems like Costa Rica would be the clear third favorite. Um, and remember, this Gold Cup is very important because the top four teams, uh, the top, sorry, the top two teams who haven't already qualified for the 2016 Copa America will qualify for that uh, based on this Gold Cup. I believe that um, the teams who are already in, I think it's Jamaica and... Um, uh, it might be Costa Rica. I can't remember. There are uh, U.S. and Mexico are obviously in, but if Canada wants to qualify, they need basically a top four finish. Um, but the thing is, is that right now, U.S. is in, the U.S. are in a completely uh, transitional phase. Uh, other than Dempsey and Bradley, um, possibly Jones, uh, we we don't really know who the difference makers on the U.S. are. I mean, is Julian Green even good at soccer? We're not sure yet. I mean, we have all these young guys, Julian Green. Uh, DeAndre Yedlin, Joe Zhao, uh, John Anthony Brooks. We have there, there are all these young players who, who we're not really sure if they're good yet. And, and you know, it'd be very interesting. They should mature by 2018, but perhaps 2015 is too soon. Now, on the flip side, um, the guy who I'm really scared of, at least from a U.S. perspective, is Carlos Vela, who finally came back to the national team. And this is probably the best attacking player in all of CONCACAF who is playing at uh, Real Sociedad and scoring goals. And, and um, not only him, but you can bring... It, they're not even starting Javier Hernandez, who's getting minutes at Real Madrid, um, not to mention Giovanni Dos Santos, and then the plethora of great attacking players that they have in Liga MX. It just seems like right now that... Um, Mexico is the clear favorite for the tournament. In fact, at this point, unless something changes in the next couple of months, I'd be very surprised if um, Mexico did not come away with a championship this year. Hey, remember when uh, Juan Agadello had more goals for the national team than he did with the uh, club team in Red Bulls? He scored, yeah. uh, he scored first for the national team in the Red Bulls? I do remember that. What happened to him? I don't know. He still doesn't have a team. <laughs> yeah, that's classic. I just I just made that up because like you bring up Julian Green and some of these other players. Like the United States loves the hype train and they yeah. love this whole you know like get behind the young guys and they're going to be the future of the team. And I think that's the stage that we're in right now because Landon Donovan's gone and you mentioned you know uh, Dempsey's in the you know towards the end of his career and but he still has some years left to kind of give. Uh, but these pieces are gone and you kind of wonder who's going to step up and who's going to fill these roles. I had down that I thought Costa Rica is, is a really good favorite because they did very well in the World Cup. Like you mentioned, you know, um, beating Italy, beating uh, Uruguay, tying England, you know, going to penalties against both Greece and Netherlands. I mean, they're a team that I would I'd actually like to see that. That would be kind of cool for CONCACAF because it's really been a two-horse race forever, uh, the U.S. and Mexico, which is cool. And, and I think U.S. soccer obviously wants U.S.-Mexico for the final because that will get the most um, – hits and stuff like that and views and get the most uh, ticket sales. But I really want uh, Costa Rica and Canada as my final. <laughs> I mean, one thing about, you know, the supposed Ill illegitimacy of the CONCACAF region is you have regions like uh, UEFA, um, you have A Asia, you have CAF, you have... Um, uh, Conanball, uh, the South America. You, all four of those regions have won multiple teams with the infrastructure or multiple countries with the infrastructure to host 
an international tournament like this and two multiple different teams that are favorites to to win the tournament every single time that it happens. And we're talking about, of course, the regional tournaments that exist. The problem with CONCACAF is really there are only two teams, like you said, USA and Mexico, even though Canada did win it in the year 2000. In order for... Um, the region, this region to grow, there need to be more teams, more teams that are not only um, able to challenge for the top spot in, in in the confederation, but also more teams which should be able to host the tournament. I mean, I would love to see possibly a, dro- a joint uh, Caribbean bid to host the, the Gold Cup. I'd love to see a joint Central American bid to host the Gold Cup. I mean, regard- even though the facilities would be worse and the confederation wouldn't make as much money, it's just sort of a joke that... Uh, our region's tournament is always hosted in the United States. And you can argue, I mean, yeah, BMO Field got some games this year, but whatever. I mean, that's literally like 20 miles from the U.S. border. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, it'd be nice to see that travel, but it comes down to money. When it comes down to everything, it comes down to money. And the fact of the matter is, too, is that some of the home games from the United States are home games from Mexico. I remember yeah. Tim Howard saying, like, it's, it's, a, it's an embarrassment that they were playing in California and there was more Mexican uh, fans than there were U.S. fans. So I don't know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, well, so if if you're uh, MLS, do you root for uh, do you root for Cubo Torres scoring the game winner in the final? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, although right now he's at Guadalajara, so um, who knows? Although that was a great pickup for the Houston Dynamo, but. Um, Let's see, one, one thing that we were talking about, a future generation of stars, and right now um, the U.S. under-20 team is playing, I believe. Who are they playing right now? Panama. What's the score? 0-0. 0-0? 30-second minute. 30-second uh, minute? Yeah, so I hope you guys don't mind spoilers. <laughs> has, anything ha- has anything happened yet? Uh, no, there's actually been some decent shots and some hard tackles and stuff like that. There was just uh, a substitution, but I missed it because you were talking to me. All right, well, whatever. Um. It's, it brings us to the next next topic on the first eleven, and that is on, on Friday, I believe it was. Um, the U.S. under twenty team drew Guatemala um, thanks to a last minute golazo from Guatemalan player. Um, they drew one to one. Number eleven on the first eleven says that the U.S. under twenty is tying Guatemala is a sign that the national team's future isn't bright. Well, I think it's good that the the youth national team is following the same system as the um, full national team and conceding late goals, so that we know that <laughs> we know that our system is strong and that we have a, a clear philosophy going forward. Thank you, Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh, I don't know. Like the goal, I, I tweeted this out immediately that it, it's just kind of an embarrassment that this happened. And someone wrote back to me like, "What do you mean? The, the goal was amazing. The goal was amazing. It was, it was outstanding, and there was nothing really the goalkeeper could do, and it's hard to defend against because it's one of those lasers from outside the box. But the fact of the matter is, you had possession virtually the whole game. I tried to look up the possession stat. Yeah, I actually tried to do research. Sorry, Abram. Um, but <laughs> I couldn't find the possession stat because it's a youth game. I don't know how readily available they make those types of things on uh, U.S. soccer. But anyway, the I was watching the game, and the U.S. just had the ball the entire time. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if it was, like, 70-30 or something like that. It was crazy how much they had the ball. They didn't have the ball in dangerous positions. They kind of just tossed it around every now and then, penetrated the box and stuff like that. But you, to only have one goal against Guatemala is just it's not good enough. You know, the U.S. is a, a better team. The U.S. has really talented players on this U-20 team. And to uh, concede late and end up 1-1 is, is not a, a promising start. And then you also have, like, to go along with this, you also have the failure to qualify for the Olympics a few years ago. 
So you have two major like letdowns. And granted, this is not a letdown yet. There's still much more tournament to play, and they could end up winning it. But I'm, I'm not necessarily sold in the future being bright. The only guy that really stuck out to me, and I know you know him well, uh, is Tommy Thompson. I thought obviously he brought a lot of class, and when he just when he touches the ball, you can just see how good of a player he is. Yeah, um, and I, I agree that tying a tiny poor Central American nation like Guatemala is not good enough. At the same time, there's very little correlation between youth games and full international games. It's more important to look at the prospects who are coming through who could end up making a difference, and I think that there's a lot to be excited uh, about, and uh, including the player who I just brought up, Emerson Hyman, also Tommy Thompson, Kellen Acosta, um, guys who aren't on this team but who are actually, I think, eligible for the team, like Julian Green, uh, Gideon Zalalem, um, who just got his uh, eligibility. I mean, there are a lot of young guys coming through the pipeline who, uh, who could end up being really, really, really good players. And, you know, I mean, I think uh, Switzerland won a U-20 World Cup a couple years ago, uh, in that famous uh, U-20 World Cup, which USA advanced far in with uh, the the famous tournament with Freddie Adu and Josie Altador and Danny Zatella and uh, Robbie Rogers, Sal Zizzo, that team that team lost to Austria in the in the U uh, in the the quarterfinals of the world uh, of that tournament. And in the round of 16, they beat a Uruguay team that had Edison Cavani and Luis Suarez on it. I mean, it's just there is really no correlation um, between. At actual team's performance. I mean, if you look at Mexico's been in, immensely successful in youth tournaments as of late, and they have yet to put it together for a full full team international tournament. I just there's nothing really to read into. I just think that as long as they qualify for the tournament and those young players get the experience, then that's all you can really ask. It doesn't really matter if you make a deep run or go out in the in the group stage. I mean, the U.S. in the 2005, the U.S. beat the under 20 team with Messi on it. I mean, it's just it's whatever. I don't know. No, I agree with you, and, and tournaments are just, you never know, like single games and high pressure and, and, you know, different venues kind of mess up players and stuff like that, but I was really excited for this game, partly because I haven't watched, like, live soccer because I don't watch the EPL very much uh, in a long time, and, like, I was kind of let down. I was kind of, at the end of the 90 minutes, I was kind of like, that's it, and, and I, was, I was expecting much more, especially the next day when you see, you know, Jamaican, different teams, but you see uh, Mexico absolutely destroy, I think it was uh, Aruba, it was like 9-0. I think it was Cuba. Oh, it was Cuba, you're right, it was Cuba, <laughs> and they rode like a human bicycle. I mean, I wanted that, I wanted my human bicycle uh, for the U.S. national team, the youth national team. So, we'll see what happens, and, uh, you know, you're right, I, I don't think this is necessarily a panic button type of situation. I, I don't either, and you know, I think the thing I always think about is, I watched maybe 10 minutes of the, I think it was 2009 under 20 World Cup, and uh, Dilly Duca chipped like the Nigerian goalkeeper, left footed, upper 90 from like 45 yards, and, and then never did anything else for the entire rest of his career. I mean, hey, it's, a, it's just think about that. Hey, how many of um, the players on Guatemala do you think are love children of uh, Al Pescadito? <laughs> Isn't he the coach? Is he really? I think so. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, Beatles are coach. One of our coaches. Really? I, I think, okay, so I think that Carlos Ruiz... Should come back to MLS? No. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, he's obviously the greatest player in, in Guatemala's history, which is not, not saying a ton, but Carlos Ruiz has probably fathered more children than... Uh, 
Antonio Cromartie is my guess. <laughs> I think for that we should probably wrap things up. Yeah, probably. Do you do you have a do you have anything to plug? What do you so, yeah, I don't know. Just follow me on Twitter at SethMan31 and read my work on the Ben Musket. Check out uh, total-mls.com and I don't know, go from there. Okay, well, um, let's see. I, I imagine in a second that we'll just have Abram voice over all the regular plugs because he always does them. He's always really good at uh, it's one of the few things that he's actually good at, but um, I'll say special thanks to uh, Seth for joining us on this show in place of Abram. This is a new thing that we're trying. It's called a recording every week, um, in which that if Abram, Abram and I cannot record, we'll get someone else to fill in, possibly probably Seth again, uh, possibly Hank Alexander of the Midnight Ride. Who knows? Maybe even... Alexi Lawless, maybe? I heard that <laughs> next week. Lawless. I heard that Taylor Twelman wants to come on our podcast to break some news or something. Uh, but uh, for that, it's been, um, or for Seth and I, it's been, I don't, I don't know how to sign off. Abram just voice over all of this. We're done. And we're sorry. <laughs> and we're sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go ahead and follow Evan. He's at Evan Ream. Go ahead and follow Seth. He's at SethMan31. Go ahead and follow the show. It's at First11Pod. Go ahead and follow our pseudo network at the AASP. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash allamericansoccerpodcast. Or like the actual show on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash first11pod. Rate and review us on Stitcher. Rate and review us on iTunes. This has been episode 30, who really cares, of the First 11 podcast. And we're sorry. Sorry.